Hurry, get in here quick, honey, it's an emergency. Chris, are you okay? Are yeah, you okay? Yeah, two things. Um, first, the batteries went dead in the TV remote. So could you turn it to channel 117 because Duck Dynasty is about to start. Are you serious? And number two, you will not believe what Brett Gothier just posted on Facebook. What? Up to 97 sit-ups in seven minutes. My body fat's down to 0.2%. <laughs> and the nerve of this guy, look at the picture he posted too. A picture of him flexing. Who cares how flat your stomach is? It's what's inside that counts, right, honey? Honey. Kyla! Oh, <laughs> Sorry, you're right. It is about what's inside. I mean, nobody wants a fat belly, or I mean a flat belly, whatever. Listen, you know what? Emily's just as bad, okay? Listen to what she posted. <sighs> Guess where we're going for vacay? That's right, Hawaii. My wonderful, beautiful husband, Brett, surprised me. I love you, snuggle bunny. Yeah. I hate her. I know, right? <laughs> it's just, it's not fair. I mean, we're nice people. I mean, why don't our lives look like all those other people's? I don't you know? know? I work out sometimes. <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, we go nice places for vacation, kind of. You know, hon, um, I hate to say it, but driving to Nebraska to see your cousin's prized pig doesn't exactly qualify as vacation. I'm just saying. I'm doing the best that I can, okay? okay. And it was his prize rooster, not his pig. Well, whatever it was. I don't... Oh, oh, look. Katie Brady just Instagrammed another photo of a remodeled bathroom. Hmm. <laughs> and her bedroom. And the gourmet meal she just made Brad. Oh, and their new landscaping. Whoa. It's like the White House over there. There's not a dandelion in sight. Look at that. What's that supposed to mean? It means that we have a dandelion crop growing in our front yard, Chris. Do you plan on harvesting that anytime soon? Well, Martha Stewart, <laughs> the day you learn to make me a meal the way Katie makes Brad meals, I'll fix the yard, okay? Uh, you know what? Pinterest makes me hate our house. Facebook makes me hate our lives. <laughs> Wait, I've got an idea. What? Honey, meet my friend, Mr. Photoshop. I'll take that picture of us at the Rooster Fest, uh -huh. cut out my cousin Daryl and little Daryl. Okay, I still cannot believe that he named his chicken after himself. Ro I, Rooster. I, I'm just Rooster, saying. okay. We'll paste us on this picture of a Cancun beach, okay. and voila, here we are, the happy couple vacationing in Mexico. Oh my gosh, honey, you're a genius. I know. <laughs> you know what? If Gothier can go to Hawaii, we can go to Mexico. Hey, but can you... Do you think you can Photoshop that zit off my chin? It doesn't look very good. Honey, I'm not a magician. Okay. Oh my gosh, you just put your head on Bradley Cooper's body. I think you can take care of the zit on my chin. Kyla, if we're gonna sell this as true, we've got to have some element of reality in it, okay? Yeah. We want everyone to know we're just normal people like they are. Right. I have a 10 pack and you have a zit on your chin and the slightest trace of hair on your upper hey, lip. Hey, that's a shadow, Chris, and you know it. And we cut and paste. Ooh, how does this sound? Chris wrestled a barracuda. Mexico is fabulous this time of year. Miss all of our peeps. Oh, that's good, that's good. Hey, Chris, fix the zit, and would you? And posted. There, now we look like we're happy and successful. Mm, that's actually not so bad. And you can't really see that zit when it's small like that. Dude. Oh, and the responses are already coming in. What a cute couple. Chris, you're looking great. Have you been working out? Enjoy Mexico. You guys deserve a vacay. That's right. Oh, here's one from Emily Gothier. 
So jealous of you two. Why can't my life be like yours? Ah, yes! Finally, we have the life that everyone else wants. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Woo, suckers. <laughs> uh, so what are we having for dinner? Two boxes of macaroni and cheese. Sweet! I'm gonna post some pictures of us enjoying a drink on our hotel balcony overlooking the Gulf. Perfect. Ooh, and one of our remodeled kitchen. Choke on that one, Katie. Man, I love our house. <laughs> I love our life. Hey, give them both a hand. Good job. Do you ever find yourself uh, acting that out in any sort of way? Do you ever find yourself looking uh, over your shoulder and uh, measuring yourself and your own worth and the value of your life against someone else's? Um, Jesus came across in his day, someone who did that. And it uh, may surprise you, but we're going to take a look at that this morning. Uh, this past week, uh, especially uh, with the Nuggets, and uh, yeah, sorry, I, I wanted them to win too, uh, with the NHL playoffs, um, competition and measuring ourselves against others has kind of been on my mind because my goodness, you watch, uh, you watch the NBA and there's foam fingers in the air. There's thousands of people that are uh, uh, gathering into these arenas, uh, almost like a place of worship. There's these uh, cardboard cutout of all these uh, faces now like that. I I'd like to get one of those sometime. That would be kind of fun, I would think. You know you've arrived if someone holds up a face, a cardboard cutout of your face, right? It's like the new standard of popularity, I guess. And then when everybody shoots a free throw, almost every stadium now, they have those, uh, what are the thunder sticks, right? And everybody just um, swarming around this idea of, uh, of competition. Um, so I did a little research on competition. And uh, what I found shouldn't be uh, too surprising to anyone, I don't think. Uh, competition is... Uh, well, it's a powerful foundation even of our entire American culture, our, our, our way of life. Uh, according to a recent World Values survey, our approval as Americans of, of competition is unmatched by any country on earth. And that survey reflecting, again, our belief that um, uh, competition is good and the best way to get ahead and the best way to gauge even our individual value is through competition. Television entertains us, but perhaps its greatest value is it gives us a window into our culture. Next time you pick up your remote, whether it's this afternoon or any time this week, just pick it up and at random go through, go through the channels and chances are really, really good that no matter where you land, you'll end up on some sort of amped up drama that involves competition and winners versus losers. America's Got Talent, they're all competing. American Idol, The Bachelor and Bachelorette, The Amazing Race, Dancing with the Stars, The Voice, and, and all the rest of Ryan Long's favorite TV shows. 
And on and on and on and on, TV's window into our culture is telling us that our culture is just enamored with, fascinated uh, with competition, an adoration of competition, of measuring ourselves, gauging our self-worth against the Joneses and the Smiths and others. And of course, sports, which I've mentioned, billions and billions and billions of dollars spent on and surrounding and out of competition as entertaining, as fun, as good, as valuable. We want to compete. The NBA and the NHL playoffs are going on now. Baseball comes in the fall and then football in the winter and the spring and then the golf majors are in between. And there's lacrosse and there's all these sports and then the calendar turns and it starts all over again. And in school with your kids, where do you spend a lot of your time if you're a taxi service like Jill and I are with our kids, right? To and from soccer games and baseball games and basketball games and football games. And there we are in the, fa- in the stands cheering on and teaching our kids, compete, 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 compete. We love competition. But for all of the good of competition that may come out? Does it come with a cost? Recent research has shown a clear relationship between levels of happiness and competition. According to a comparative study of 42 nations around the world, Happiness decreases as the level of competition increases in a given society. And if you want something even more sobering, if that doesn't trouble you, maybe this might. Studies coming out now about what competition does to our kids. Those beautiful shining faces that you saw dancing up here a little bit ago. The results are alarming. Kids' self-esteem is shaped by winning and losing and comparing themselves to others. Many have observed that that one reason, at least, for the, the, the increase, it would seem, of violent crime in teens is because our kids are cracking. They're breaking under the pressure to perform and to compete with others. And when they feel like they simply cannot The pressure is so great that even a good, right-thinking kid under that sort of pressure is sorely tempted and many, as we know, follow through. You know what? I'm going to pick up a gun and I'm going to level the playing field so I, for once, can come out on top. Studies show that more competitive a child is, the less empathetic and less generous she is. And on and on and on, the research I poured through this week showing the damaging effects of competition. And what about the church? What about the people of God? Does our cultural push of competition come through these doors or follow us home into our lives as we try to live out our witness and share with the world the love of God? Does competition show itself there, and at what cost? Do you ever, in your walk before the Lord, as you live out your life as a follower of Jesus, do you ever 
look around or turn and look over your shoulder and, and measure your own uh, obedience before the Lord, your own love of God, love of others, your own call, whatever it is you're doing for the Do you ever, are you ever tempted to measure that against someone else doing the same and kind of just seeing where you fit with that? Well, in one of Jesus' appearances to his disciples after he rose from the dead, that very issue presents itself. It's in John chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter John 21. And Jesus speaks to this idea of his followers measuring themselves against others. And what he has to say about it is as clear and as abrupt as anything that he has said in his entire ministry. We've been in John chapter 21 these past few weeks. You recall that Jesus is meeting along the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the Sea of Galilee, and there are seven of his disciples there, and they're fishing. And then after their um, miraculous catch of 153 uh, fish, they recognize it's Jesus, and then they come ashore, and they join Jesus for breakfast on the beach, remember? Remember? And then last week you heard Nathan talk about how, how Jesus reaffirms Peter and urges Peter to, to show his love for Jesus by loving others. That sounds somewhat familiar. <laughs> and that's where we pick up the story again this morning. Breakfast is over. Um, some of the disciples probably putting out the little charcoal fire, and it, it seems that Jesus and Peter now are taking a stroll along the beach after uh, Peter is being restored and trailing along behind a bit, but within earshot is the Apostle John. And that's the setting for when Jesus tells Peter this, beginning at verse 18. Very truly I tell you, Peter, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned. Let's stop there. No coincidence in the progression of those two-word statements. The Greek syntax, in fact, in the original highlights it. Jesus' words to Peter are, follow me. Next thing Peter does is, Peter turned. Do you ever notice that Peter in the Gospels has this, uh, well, it's almost an endearing habit now, but it must have been very frustrating for him, endearing for us, frustrating for Peter. You ever notice Peter in the Gospels has this um, habit of um, right after he gets something right, right after he does great, right after it's going awesome, right after Jesus says, attaboy, Peter, the very next story, Peter blows it. Can you relate? <laughs> I know I can. It happens all the time. Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. Peter, you are the son of the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And you go, yeah, way to go, Peter. Two verses later, get behind me, Satan. And it happens all the time. With, and here he is, tearful reunion with Jesus. 
oh, the forgiveness and grace that pours from Jesus and recommissioning Peter in front of his peers as a leader of the pack. And finish their breakfast, and Peter's feeling good about himself, and off they go down the street. And Jesus reminds them, he says, Peter, I got to tell you, you're going to die by crucifixion. So what you need to do, especially, Peter, keep your eyes on me. Just follow me. And Peter turned. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, that is John, Peter asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus' response is abrupt and clear. I picture if they're walking, Jesus comes to a full stop. I think he did that often with the disciples when they asked silly questions. <laughs> I picture him turning to Jesus and looking him in the eye and saying, Peter, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And he repeats himself, you must follow me. You must follow me. Peter can't help but turn and look at even his dear friend John and try to measure his own fate, his own call before the Lord in terms of what John, what was going to happen to him. He couldn't resist. And at the bottom of his interest in it, <laughs> Does there rest some sort of competition or, or rivalry between Peter and John? Many commentators think so, and the evidence in the Gospels uh, is, is significant. Peter is presented in the Gospels as, a, as the leader of the disciples, but uh, John, and it's only in John where he calls himself the beloved disciple. Hmm. John depicts himself as faithful, standing with Jesus and his mother at the cross. John tells us that he beat Peter in that race to the empty tomb. You want to something funny? Go to John chapter 20 where Peter and John race to the empty tomb. John repeats three times, I beat Peter, I beat Peter, I beat Peter. Three times. John then tells us, make sure that we know that he's the first to believe when he sees the empty tomb. In our story this morning, or the one before with 153 fish, um, John tells us that Peter, on recognizing Jesus, well, first John says he's the first to recognize him. Peter seems oblivious. And then when he tells Peter, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims for shore. And the very next line might be telling because John says, well, the disciple that Jesus loved and the rest of the disciples stayed with the boat and the fish. Someone had to do all the work. And it's fascinating when you compare, and there is this sense, and the Gospel of John in particular shows John in a favorable light and tends to show lots of Peter's mistakes. The Gospel of Mark 
who many believe Mark's main source of information was Peter, since Mark was not a disciple. Very old tradition suggests Mark may have, in fact, been one of Peter's disciples. The Gospel of Mark, on the other hand, Peter is shown more favorably, and John's mistakes are included, like the time John and his brother James wanted Jesus to guarantee them that they got to be the ones that sat on his right and his left. John's gospel makes sure we know it's Peter who drew his knife and slashed the guy's ear off in Gethsemane. In Mark, interestingly enough, we don't know the name of the disciple who acted so strangely. And on and on. And so this sort of rivalry or competition in Peter's question, Lord, what about him? Many of you might remember before Jesus died, Peter had earlier volunteered to follow Jesus to the cross. And you remember he failed to follow through. And at that time, Jesus had predicted Peter would follow later. And so Jesus tells Peter on the shore, after he's risen from the dead, what that following later is going to look like. It's going to look like crucifixion, Peter. And so when Jesus, when Peter, upon hearing that, immediately takes his eyes off of Jesus on the shores of the sea, turns to his shoulder and looks at John, Jesus won't let him off the hook this time. He won't let him change the subject. Peter, what's that to you? You follow me. What's going on with John? What's going on with anyone else? You know what? It's none of your business. You don't need to worry yourself with it. It's not your concern. It's my concern. You have one duty. Keep your eyes on and follow me. And Jesus' response to any inclination of his followers to compare and contrast themselves for how everyone else is doing in this live-by-faith thing his response is, in a word, don't. Don't go there. Don't measure yourself and how you're doing with the Lord by comparing yourself to how others are. Instead, our focus needs to be on Jesus and following him. You know, those bracelets are famous, right? Uh, how many of you have ever had or still have a WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? Are they sort of out of fashion now? See, none of the kids have them anymore. It used to be kid, all the kids had them. What would Jesus do? Um, that's a focus on Jesus, but uh, I'd suggest a different bracelet. Maybe this will be the next bracelet. It could still be WWJD. It could be Walk With Jesus Daily. Or my other favorite, and I've got to look at it because it's so long. My other favorite might be um, WWJDIHWM. <laughs> have to have a big wrist. What would Jesus do if he were me? And the reason why I like that difference is as we're focusing on the Lord, there can even be uh, this undue pressure that somehow out of our own strength, oh my gosh, i got to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Instead, 
the Savior comes close, acknowledging who you are and exactly how it is he made you. And together, to me, the, uh, the gentler, the less anxious, the less competitive. Do you know what? What would Jesus do if he were me, just as I am? No matter what your giftedness is, no matter what your strengths or weaknesses are, God can and will use you. But the secret is to keep your eye on him. When you start looking over your shoulder at what others' giftednesses are, and start wondering why you don't get to have that gift or why your life seems to be harder than someone else, Jesus steps immediately in and he puts his arm around you and he says, listen, I want you just to focus on me. We'll do this together. I promise. Let's you and I work this out. Don't worry about anybody else. Let's you and I work this out. And something amazing happens when we can maintain that focus. The amazing thing that happens is the healing that it brings to all of those other relationships with each other when we simply focus on him. I'd like to issue, that, issue you that challenge uh, this week. You know, for me, I had to pause, and when I thought of the question I was going to ask you, I had to, boy, I've got to ask myself this question. When is the last time that in your devotion time or your time before the Lord that you really sat down and you just said, you know what, um, where am I right now with my relationship with you, Lord? How are we doing you and me. Because all the relationships we have with others and how life pushes in, whether it's the Joneses or the Smiths, and it can tend to detract us and have us turn that we start to neglect this. And the power of this story on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, it seems to me, is a reminder and a call to come back again and I challenge you to do that this week in your devotion time. Just sit before the Lord and reflect on how is it that you are doing just with him. And as you do that, remember he's there to love you and to give his grace to you and to comfort you and to strengthen you. And he, Jesus is all about you, so you don't need to be. Would you this week focus on and reflect on and pray about what is your relationship with him like today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this amazing story. The story that uh, John tells us, probably long after Peter had given his life for you. Father, as we take our turn in living now before you come again, may we hear and learn the lesson as well as Peter and John did. May we recognize that, you know, competition and rivalry between us as children in your family is poison to the witness of who we are in you. Help us, Father, to humbly instead focus simply 
on our walk with you. And Father, I ask that you keep your promise, Father, that when we do, when we seek first your kingdom and righteousness, that everything else will fall in place and you'll give us peace. Father, we love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? Many of you I know the Beatitudes, and many of you I know recognize the following Beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Eugene Peterson in the message has an interesting take and angle into that peacemaking idea based on his study. He puts that beatitude this way. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and discover your place in God's family. May we all be peacemakers and called children of God. Amen? Amen. Have a great week, West Bulls. God bless you all.